Hey, I'm Veronica Dagger, and this is the Wall Street Journal Secrets of Wealthy Women, where women share how they tackle career, money, and the world. Today, we're speaking with Marla Beck, co-founder and CEO of the luxury beauty company, Blue Mercury. Back when Marla got started, most beauty products were either sold behind glass at department stores or at the local drugstore. For Marla, who was living in the D.C. area at the time, that meant driving about 40 minutes just to buy her favorite brand of lipstick. So in 1999, she and her husband opened their first Blue Mercury, a neighborhood store that offered luxury cosmetics much closer to customers. And they sold products through their online store, which at the time was pretty innovative. Marla's approach to beauty got the attention of investors, researchers, and eventually retail giant Macy's, which bought Blue Mercury for more than $200 million. Marla's here today to tell us the secret to spotting trends, how the beauty business is changing amid the coronavirus pandemic, and what's ahead for Blue Mercury. Welcome, Marla. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me today. Our pleasure. So, Marla, this certainly is not a great time for many businesses, but you've gone through your share of economic downturns. In fact, you launched Blue Mercury as an e-commerce company in 1999, and then around 2001, the dot-com bust happened. What was it like pitching people in an e-commerce store back then? Oh my God, e-commerce was so new uh, back then. When I had been in graduate school, I had met an obscure entrepreneur just a year earlier who was explaining the internet to us and e-commerce and how he was going to change the world by selling books online. It happened to be Jeff Bezos, but we had just gotten our first email addresses and didn't have cell phones. And so e-commerce was at the very, very beginning. And sometimes it's very hard to be a pioneer. So we launched Blue Mercury with a digital site. We had raised a million dollars in two weeks just based on some relationships I had uh, from working in finance. And back then it cost almost a million dollars to build a website. And so we were, it was pretty clear we were going to run out of money. So we went to go pitch. And unfortunately, there were three or four other e-commerce sites that had raised 10 to $20 million. And so we were early, we were pitching, and no one wanted to give us money. And so we realized pretty quickly that we were going to have to put our head down and bootstrap and build a real business. So it's interesting when you're pitching because no one ever says no. They they just say not yet, or they have a nice conversation with you, but no one ever wants to say no because someday it could be a yes, and they don't want you to feel bad. So you have to be aware of that when you're pitching, that they're not going to say no, and so you have to really be uh, realistic about what you're hearing and what you're seeing in terms of how they're acting, not necessarily what they're saying. So in hindsight, I should have seen the signals sooner but we came to the realization that we couldn't raise money and we were going to have to pivot. And back then, there was no such thing as the word pivot. We were actually almost going bankrupt. (laughs) Um, And so that's when we decided that the real opportunity was to open a neighborhood beauty store. So we had this e-commerce.
e-commerce site. We were too early. Uh, we couldn't raise money, and we thought the store was the answer. So we launched with our first location in Georgetown. Uh, the customers loved it right away. And so we realized we were onto something completely different than what we had originally anticipated. And it was all because we couldn't raise money. Can you just give us a bit more of a history lesson? Who were the e-commerce customers back then? Well, I mean... Basically, hardly anybody was shopping online back then. So I always joke that all the e-commerce players were just buying from each other. Uh, <laughs> e-commerce in 1999 was in its infancy. Uh, everybody was dial-up on AOL. And anyone who's seen that famous movie, You've Got Mail, you, you realize how long people had to wait to just connect to the Internet, let alone try to get through and shop. And so only really, really early adopters were shopping, barely anyone. So you know, we opened our website and launched and no one came. So it was just the orders were slow. Everybody was experiencing that at the, the beginning because it was a new industry, completely a new way of shopping and people weren't used to it yet at all. And so um, we had very few customers. Um, and that's why the stores worked because people were used to shopping for beauty. They just didn't like the experience of shopping for beauty where you would have to go up to a glass counter ask for help from one brand. And if you, for example, bought Lancome mascara from one counter, but you wanted the Clinique cleanser from another counter, you had to start all over with a new sales associate. So it was super inefficient to shop that way. And so just by virtue of the fact that we had a store where you could work with one beauty expert that was trained in all brands and you could actually touch product, just broke down all the barriers of beauty. So at the time it was revolutionary today, it seems common. Uh, but that's where the win was because we weren't changing everybody's behavior in terms of shopping in a store. We were just changing the fact that it was inconvenient and uncomfortable. And then over time, the digital experience and the internet came along. And that's when, because we had a foothold in stores, that's when the bluemercury.com business started to take off. But we were just, we were too early. And there are, there are always tons of stories of entrepreneurs being too early and having to figure out something else. So you were a visionary in this space, but it almost cost you your business, right? Because you almost lost everything because you were too early in e-commerce. I mean, what's the lesson there for other forward-thinking entrepreneurs? I think the lesson is don't run out of money. I mean, the key <laughs> is we, we were down to our last 100K and we had to do something. And so you want to survive long enough for good things to happen. I think entrepreneurs go through these certain times where they're being coached to spend your money and scale early and take the market. But what often happens is you spend everything in your bank account and you have nothing to show for it, not enough revenue. And so you have to be careful about what you're hearing from investors, you know, who want you to scale quickly and what your gut is telling you about, you know, what is the right amount to spend to acquire customers and how you build a a steady, loyal client base. And so you, you have to really survive long enough and not spend all your cash in the bank testing a model. You have to preserve some to keep going and try new things. You mentioned your gut. I mean, do you wish you had gone with your gut more back then? Because right now we're seeing such a huge rise in e-commerce. 
I always wish I had gone more with my gut uh, throughout every decision I make. I mean, I think, you know, you get so wrapped up in the day to day that you don't always listen to what you think is true. And so, uh, you know, I think back then we did exactly the right thing. We would have been out of business. We just hadn't raised enough money to scale pure e-commerce. The fact that we were able to launch 200 locations, you know, since we started, I think, we're showing that, uh, you know, retail was the right way to go to build our business and build our digital business simultaneously. And so my gut kept us in business back then, and hopefully it's keeping us um, uh, moving right now in this new crisis. Marla, you gradually grew Blue Mercury by opening several brick and mortar locations. And then eventually when you opened a location, Sephora, another brick and mortar beauty chain would sometimes open nearby. How did you compete and was that stressful for you as a founder? With a competitor opening next to you or competing with you, it's always a little bit stressful uh, because, you know, you wonder how big the market is and whether you can survive. I think what we learned was what made us different and how to lean into that. And what made us different was our people and our beauty expertise. And so we really prided ourselves on having the best trained experts in the business. So if you came in you had any question, how to blow out your hair, uh, how to treat a blemish, uh, how to do your eye makeup, that our beauty experts knew the answer and could not only teach you, but also show you which products were best for you. And so that interactive, friendly experience really was our point of difference and continues to be. The other thing we have done differently is we have had spas at every location since the beginning. So that combination of services where you can get a facial or a brow styling or waxing with beauty products really um, uh, enhanced our expertise and our position as experts. And so while it seems like it could be tough at the beginning. It really keeps you on your toes of finding your point of difference and what makes you special and unique. And that that beauty expert piece has been part of our DNA since the very beginning. It also helped us to innovate on our business model, which is we decided early on that we were only going to have full-time beauty experts. So traditionally in retail, people would hire part-time so they wouldn't have to pay benefits. And we decided we wanted full-time staff that would grow with us and become managers and leaders uh, in our organization. And that meant uh, hiring full-timers, paying benefits, um, and paying the best wage in the industry. And uh, people used to tell me I was crazy. Retail was never going to work with a model like that. And we decided to break the rules. And that sort of radical HR strategy has really been a point of difference over time. We have people that are leaders in our organization that have been with us for 15 years and started on the store floor. And so I think we gave people a home to build a career and gave women a home to build a career in beauty that wasn't possible before. 93% of our company is women. I'm very proud of that. Our entire senior team is women. Um, and so, and we love to promote from within. Uh, so it's really given us a point of difference that I think is hard to replicate. Having a full-time staff means significant financial obligations. You have to pay benefits and salaries, and I would imagine those obligations would be a lot of extra pressure when many of your stores were closed due to the coronavirus. 
I mean, I think it's been tricky. I mean, honestly, March 17th, we shut down all 200 locations uh, in a day. You know, the day before, I, you know, if you had asked me, hey, are you going to shut down all your locations? I would be like, no. Everything happens so quickly in terms of the rise of cases and the information about how to keep people safe. Uh, so, so that was one of the hardest days of my life because these were, you know, our team, our family, uh, and we were closing down the stores. Uh, we kept people on for as long as we could, but we got to a point where survival and preserving cash was the most important. And so we had to furlough everybody and cut people's salaries. Um, We cut everybody who remained their salaries and we continued to pay benefits. And that was really important to us. Um, So yeah, I had a lot of sort of tearful phone calls with our entire team and not just because they're full time, but because, you know, they're part of our family. Um, And I had never, ever experienced anything like that in my career at Blue Mercury over 20 years. I mean, two recessions. We had one in, you know, 99, 2001 with the dot-com bust. And then 9-11, we had 2007, 2008 with the financial crash. I think COVID has been the worst ever because of the impact on people and the uncertainty it creates. And when you have so much uncertainty about what what the future is going to look like, um, you know, people are concerned and uncomfortable. And so a lot of what we have been doing is just, you know, making sure everybody knows they're part of the family and we're going to survive together um, and uh, thrive together. I want to jump back to the beauty business itself. You stock some brands in your stores, but you also create your own beauty products. How do you decide what to stock and what to create? Yeah, good question. So I think we're always looking for white space. Um, We move fast. We're entrepreneurial. So we launch new products and new items every month, hundreds of new items every month. Uh, But what we're looking for is where are the gaps in the market? Um, So in terms of creating brands, uh, M61 is my skincare brand that we launched in 2012 as the first clean clinical vegan skincare brand. And that idea came from our clients. We had clients coming in saying, I love natural products, but they don't work. They don't do anything on my skin. And we had other clients coming in saying, I love the sort of clinical doctor's brands. You know, there were so many doctor's brands created by dermatologists back then, but they had, you know, tons of chemicals, hundreds of chemicals in them. And so M61 was just filling a gap in the market for a um, good for you vegan clinical line with, you know, and there's lists of a hundred chemicals that can't be in it. And so that was coming from just by listening to our clients. Our makeup line, uh, Luna and Aster Vegan Cosmetics, also came from the same place. We didn't have a paraben-free mascara in the store. We certainly didn't have a vegan paraben-free mascara. And then the other thing I was listening to back then was um, some of my closest friends are, you know, powerful women, and they weren't wearing makeup to work. And I kept saying, why don't you wear makeup to work? It's ridiculous. Um, Do your skin, pop on some lip gloss, and you're good. And they, they said, well, it's gotten so complicated. I've got like 12 brushes and a million steps, and I can't even figure out what to do. And so I created Luna Nastra as a vegan cosmetics line to help 
uh, women get out the door in 10 minutes or less feeling sort of powerful and polished. And so that's the greatest thing about the beauty industry. There are amazing women creating new brands all the time. And so we end up being like many venture capitalists in that we get to find new brands that we think have hope and we test them and try them in the store. And it's symbiotic because the brands get to grow uh, and develop with us. And, uh, you know, we get to launch new products and see if our clients like them. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, Marla's going to talk about how Blue Mercury has pivoted because of the pandemic and what it was like to sell her company to Macy's. If your business needs a new application, then developers will have to write code, a lot of code. If an application needs to be modernized, then you'll need time, resources, and caffeine. If that sounds daunting, then you need Watson X Code Assistant, AI designed to multiply developer productivity so you can generate code quickly. Let's create a more modern foundation for business with Watson X Code Assistant. Learn more at ibm.com slash codeassistant. IBM. Let's create. So we're in the middle of the economic crisis and many companies and industries are struggling. Comparatively, the beauty industry is generally more recession proof. How come? I think, you know, we're an industry that serves women and I, I say it's a necessity industry because everybody wants to use skincare, hair care products, makeup products, um, you know, things that make them feel good. And so what usually happens during a recession is there may be some switching of categories in terms of purchase, but there's, you know, women are still purchasing in beauty. So, you know, one example is that the move has been to skincare right now and less about makeup um, for a couple of reasons. Uh, with makeup, you know, you can't really wear lipstick or lip gloss when you have a mask on. Nobody sees it. <laughs> um, that being said, people have switched into mascara, into eyeshadows, into, you know, brow styling. And so, you know, the questions we get are how do I take, you know, how do I do my eyes? How do I make them stand out for Zoom, <laughs> right? Um, we're also getting a lot of questions about complexion. You know, the cameras today show every blemish wrinkle, flaw, anything you could have. And so how do I cover up or, um, you know, uh, smooth out my skin so it looks good on Zoom? So the purchase behavior is changing. The other thing that's interesting is, you know, beauty over the past couple of years switched, hair care switched to blow-dry bars. So a lot of women started getting blowouts, you know, a couple times a week and using less styling products at home. Uh, and so what's happened is the styling products category has gone way up because no one's going to blow dry bars. Everybody's blow drying their own hair at home. And so the beauty industry is resilient because it covers so many different needs and clients just switch into their different needs. Uh, the other category we play a lot in is self-care and home care, whether it's, you know, candles and home fragrance or, you know, spa and body products. And so we see a rise in that category as people are home and want to take care of themselves and just have sort of a comforting experience. So I think that's been one great thing 
thing about beauty during a recession is you get the switching. The other interesting thing this time is uh, the use of technology to consult with clients. And so we quickly uh, switched to doing virtual consultations online with our beauty experts. And our clients have taken us into their bathrooms and asked for advice in a way we've never seen before. So they take their phones and show us their cosmetic cabinets. Um, they show us the hair dryers they're using and they ask real advice on how to use what they already have. And so that relationship with our clients has become even more intimate than it's ever been. Uh, and you're able to do it easily, uh, virtually. Um, so, COVID has some silver linings in terms of changing the way we interact with our clients uh, in a way that we think is sustainable um, and more intimate. Uh, so, so we like that aspect and it's given us new ideas on what to do in the future. Do you think those changes are going to be long-term as a result of the coronavirus? I think so because all of our stores are open right now, um, but clients are still asking for virtual consultations. I think there's a comfort level to sitting at home and having free time rather than, you know, running errands, you know, during retail. And so it's a different it's a different shopping behavior than we've seen in the past. So I think that aspect will be permanent. We've also been able to do a lot of masterclasses with our female uh, founders uh, of brands and hit a scale we've never seen before. So it used to be you did masterclasses in store and you'd invite you know local clients to meet an entrepreneur at your store in New York City or Kansas or uh, Washington, D.C. But now we do classes online and get two or 300 or 400 clients on the call with a founder like Trish McAvoy or the founders of Chantecai or, you know, a new founder that's launching a new brand like the founder of Bloom Effects. Uh, and that's um, something we probably could have done in the past. We had the technology and the clients had the technology, but because of COVID, that's just a new behavior that's been created and we get scale from it and we can touch more people and the entrepreneur can touch more people. So we will be definitely be keeping that because it's so powerful. In 2015, you and your husband, Barry Beck, your co-founder, sold Blue Mercury to Macy's for over $200 million. What did that feel like? You know, um, it's bittersweet. Uh, you know, we had been working since 1999 in the business. And so I think it was validation of our our dreams, our hopes, our strategies, everything from, you know, expanding our retail stores to expanding our digital site to, you know, our, our own sort of radical human resource model. So it was validation, but it's also like sending a kid off to college. It's it was bittersweet because, you know, we were um, handing the business in theory over uh, to someone else uh, to see it grow. Now, that being said, the Macy's team, whether it's Terry Lundgren or the current CEO, Jeff Gannett, have been amazing and sort of saying, we want to keep Blue Mercury's DNA. And so we are a separate division of Macy's. And I've been running... 
Blue Mercury under Macy's for six years now, which um, is unheard of usually um, when comp- when companies are bought by other companies. And so it's been a great journey to grow Blue Mercury. We had 60 locations when Macy's acquired us, and we're now at almost 200. And so we've really been able to scale uh, under the Macy's umbrella. And so it's been a beautiful partnership um, from, from that standpoint. Um, so it, it's all worked out really well and we still have our same team and it's it's just an amazing experience. You spoke about some of the benefits of being part of Macy's, but Macy's is deeply struggling right now. It's laid off thousands of staff and is facing cratering sales. Blue Mercury is often seen as a bright spot. What are some of the drawbacks of being a growth engine for a larger company like that? Well, first of all, we're extremely separate as a separate division of Macy's. I have to say, because of that, we're able to move freely and we are not having some of the drawbacks of being part of a larger company that other entrepreneurs I know that have sold their companies have. Um, and the usual drawbacks are everything's slower moving. You know, everybody's asking me a million questions. Everybody's taking my time. And so I think we've been fortunate not to have those drawbacks at all. You know, I, I think... It, it's just caused me to reflect more than anything on what's important and critical in business. And I really do believe catching a wave of growth and continuing to innovate into growth areas is the most critical piece for any size business that you have to keep watching the white space. And the department stores continue to look for white space. um, And I think they get some of that white space from us. um, But we're so small compared to the whole organization that it's hard for us uh, to really, um, you know, have a big impact on, on Macy's. Um, but it's it's great because we've taken so many good things from them. They have technology infrastructure that we don't have. They ha- have incredible financial infrastructure. Um, you know, we have piggybacked on to some of their relationships with digital marketers. And so we've learned a lot from them over time. Last fall, it was announced that you were going to step away from the CEO role. But in February, the CEO of Macy's asked you to stay on. Why? It's interesting, right? You could have said, well, he saw COVID coming, but that's not true. (laughs) So, um, you know, I, I think... Barry and I are so much a part of the DNA of the company. We've always been a founder-led company. It's been for 20 years. And I think, you know, the question was, uh, how do you how do you keep running the company without the founders? And I, I think, you know, we just wanted to really try to spend a little bit of extra time thinking about how you build the company, what you do with the company, and how, how you build a company that has more infrastructure for the long term. So I think we all weren't ready to go. It's, you know, Blue Mercury is my baby. And um, the truth is, I'm so happy uh, to be here today and with my team, especially during the crisis. I think I would have been devastated to be on the outside looking inside as uh, the team was going through this crisis. We're in it together. And, uh, you know, I've been with them for a long time. So I'm happy to have been with them to lead during this crisis. How long are you going to remain Blue Mercury CEO? I don't know. We'll see. I mean, forever. I don't know. It, you know, I would say it's been my longest job. I started Blue Mercury when I was 29. I just turned 50 in May. You know, everybody says I bleed blue. I think I bleed blue. So maybe forever. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Marlo. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me.
If you'd like to hear more stories of inspiring women, you can find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite audio provider. If you like us, subscribe, share us on social media, and give us a review. Our producer is Trine Noree. Our executive producer is Kateri Yoakum. Additional help from personal finance editor Bray Lamb. I'm Veronica Dagger. Thanks for listening.